Almost two years ago, I delivered a split sermon here entitled Jehoshaphat's Bible Education Program. Jehoshaphat's father left a deep impression on him, and today we're going to discover the life and times of his father. In part, his father's career set the stage for Jehoshaphat's reforms. We're about to read the life story of a man who had such great faith at the beginning of his career as king, but somehow got tired of well-doing. In this split sermon, we'll explore the career of King Asa. The title is The Rise and Fall of King Asa. We're going to be going to Second Chronicles, so let's turn there. And we'll start in chapter 14. Second Chronicles, chapter 14, verse 1. So Abijah slept with his fathers. That is, he died and was buried along with his ancestors. And they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his stead or in his place. In his days, the land was quiet. Ten years. This great grandson of Solomon took the throne of Judah at the end of Jeroboam's reign in Israel after his father's brief reign. We are in the era after the house of Israel rebelled and split from the throne of David and formed their own kingdom. And Asa was the third king of Judah after this division and the sixth from the time that Israel became began to have kings. He has peace his first ten years because his father had defeated the ten tribes under Jeroboam. Interestingly, Asa's name in Hebrew, Asa, has something to do with physician or cure. Now, please remember that for the end of our story. Son of Abijah, he reigned from about B.C. 911 to 870. He had a long career, 41 years. It was peaceful, in good share of it. And he undertook the reformation of many abuses in his kingdom, including idolatry. So he has peace in his kingdom for 10 years. There were some border skirmishes, but no open uh, warfare at that time. Verse 2, Asa did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Asa was more like his ancestor David in his character as a king than he was like his own father. The Dake Reference Bible lists nine kings who did right. This is one of them. They were all of Judah. Not one king of the northern kingdom was considered godly. Asa did that which was good and right. For one reared in a wicked environment to be established as a righteous king, is a demonstration of the grace of God. And Dake's reference Bible goes on to list 22 things that this king does right during his reign. Verse 3, he took away the altars of the strange gods, the high places, break down the images, and cut down the groves. The high places were removed from within his own kingdom, those that were dedicated to the false idols, He had no control over the altars in northern Israel. The high places were elevated platforms upon which cultic objects were placed and worshipped. I mean, this practice was 
uh, had gone back generations well into the book of Genesis. They worshipped their various gods on high places. But after Mount Moriah was established as the temple, uh, the prohibition was no more high places for worship. And yet that practice continued throughout the rest of Israelite history. He removed the altars of the foreign gods in the high places. He launches a reform movement that lashes out against idolatry and officially sanctions sin. And when you read the companion version over in 1 Kings, it says he took away the Sodomites out of the land and removed all the idols that his father had made. Unlike today, where such people are promoted, Asa removed them. These state-sanctioned homosexual idol temple prostitutes were introduced into Judah during the reign of King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Asa's father, Abijam, did not remove these perversions and idols, but King Asa does. He acts boldly right at the beginning of his reign. He also destroyed the images, the, the uh, Asherim in the Hebrew. Asherah poles, a leading deity of the Canaanite pantheon, was Asherah, wife or sister of the god El and a goddess of fertility, commonly worshipped at shrines in or near groves of evergreen trees. And failing that were placed places marked by wooden poles. And these groves, or Asherah, were carved poles or trees to symbolize the goddess Asherah, who was also consort of Baal. They were so often mentioned in the Old Testament as devoted to the worship of Ashtoreth, the Babylonian goddess Ishtar, the Aphrodite of the Greeks, and Venus of the Romans. This idol seems to have been a sacred tree, the figure of which was constantly found on Assyrian Monuments, And in apostate Israel, such groves were associated with every form of idolatry. Verse 4, he commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to do the law and the commandments. He commanded Israel to do what's right with his own moral force and his own example. In verse 5, he took away out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the images. These were sun images, as you might see in the margins of your Bibles. The kingdom was quiet under him because the Lord will give him rest during this time because of his outstanding example, his loyal heart to God. And seeing this, it's going to be difficult for us to understand what happens later. But let's continue. He built fenced cities, fortified cities in Judah, for the land had rest and he had no war in those years because the Lord had given him rest. Often in the Old Testament, you find that God wanted to give his people peace, security, blessing. He calls that his rest, a parallel that is often spoken of elsewhere and again in Hebrews 4. Verse 7, Therefore, he said to Judah, let us build these cities and make about them walls and towers, gates and bars while the land is yet before us, because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him and he has given us rest on every side. 
So they built and prospered. It was a time to fortify, to build up, to encourage everyone to have a home, to have a property, because it was a time of peace. So he goes through and builds massive construction pieces throughout his empire. And he's also preparing his military for possible future invasions. He's thinking ahead. He's a wise king. In verse 8, Asa had an army of men that bore targets, that is, shields and spears, out of Judah, 300,000, and out of Benjamin, that bear shields and drew bows, 204 score thousand. All these were mighty men of valor, 580,000 men between the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And it's a good thing that he has such an army because, verse 9, there came out against them Zerah, the Ethiopian with a host of a thousand, thousand, and three hundred chariots and came to Marisha, an army of a million men, almost double the size of Judah's uh, army. Who was this man, Zira? We don't know much about him. Usually, biblical historians associate him with Osorkon I, a pharaoh of the 22nd dynasty of Egypt. Or he may have been a Nubian, that is, Sudanese general, leading the Egyptian forces in the service of this pharaoh. Otherwise, we do not know him from ancient records. And so this army came up towards the people of Judah, almost twice the size of the Judahite army. And Asa could know that God's power was not limited because the size of his army. He has faith. So verse 10 Asa went about, he went out against him, and they set the battle in array in the valley of Zephatha at Marisha. Zephatha is probably near Zephath or Horma, a city of Simeon, down in the southern part of that territory. Maresha, one of the southern cities, Rehoboam had fortified about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. So he goes out to meet Zerah coming up from Egypt before they got into his land. Verse 11, Asa cried to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing with you to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on you. And in your name we go up against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against us. What a prayer of faith. And that prayer is going to be answered. In his prayer, he correctly understood that God's power is not enhanced or limited by man's apparent strength or weakness. He recognized this battle belonged to God, and he called on God to defend him and his kingdom. He exercised faith, and in his name, he went out against the enemy. Verse 12, so the Lord smote the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Notice, who smote the enemy, it was God himself. That's what he'd always promised Israel in time of battle, that if they were faithful, he would do the fighting for them. There were many times when they did not look to God and they met defeat. But here, Asa's faith is rewarded by the victory and the spoils taken apparently from Philistine cities in that part of the world. 
by some providential means not described here, God enabled Asa's men to rout Zerah's hordes in answer to Asa's deep prayer of faith. The Lord smote these Ethiopians and they fled. And they did not attempt war on Israel again for another 300 years. Verse 13. Asa and the people that were with him pursued them to Gerar. And the Ethiopians were overthrown, but they could not recover themselves. For they were destroyed before the Lord and before his host. And they carried away very much spoil, plunder. Gerar was a Philistine city south of Gaza, the city had been a chief city of the Philistines at the time. And so it's destroyed. His battle, God's battles, people's battles are his own. We tell, we are told elsewhere. And so verse 14, they smote all the cities round about Gerar. For the fear of the Lord came upon them. And they spoiled, that is, plundered all the cities where there was exceeding much spoil or plunder. We have a similar statement Several chapters later, the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord fought against the enemies of Israel. When God did the fighting, the people of Israel had a reputation to not be tangled with because their God came to their rescue, reminding them of the Exodus, how God destroyed Egypt. Verse 15, so they smote also the tents of cattle, that is, the livestock enclosures carried away sheep and camels in abundance and returned to Jerusalem. God gave Judah victory over these Ethiopians. And so they are greatly enriched by the result of the battle. Not only did the enemy flee and didn't bother them again for hundreds of years, but they bring home loot that makes their kingdom even more prosperous. All because they had faith and they trusted God. To intervene and spare them. And God did. He respected that. Now let's go on to chapter 15 and verse 1. And the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Obed, one of God's prophets. He's not mentioned elsewhere. He's one of the lesser known prophets in the early years of the kingdom of Judah and he comes and bravely speaks a word to a king who has just been flushed with success after this great victory over the uh, Ethiopians. And he says in verse 2, he went out to meet Asa and he said to him, Hear you me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you be with him. And if you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. A fundamental spiritual principle for Christians as well today. We have to turn to God. We have to trust God. He wants us to look to him first. But if we forsake him, then he forsakes us. It will not happen until we do forsake him. Now, why would he tell him this? He is preparing King Asa, having just returned from this great victory for something worse to come. And reminding Asa of this outstanding faith that he showed, he must maintain it. 
This message was given after one of the greatest victories in Israel for these reasons, to confirm Asa's faith and assure him that God would always be with those who trusted in him, as demonstrated by this present victory. But secondly, to warn Asa of coming events. God knew that the northern kingdom of Israel and the kingdom above them, Syria, would unite against Judah. And he wanted Asa to be strong and continue to trust him in the coming struggles as he had done against the mighty Ethiopians. So let's see how well Asa does on this test. These eternal facts are true of an individual or a nation, Jew or Gentile, in one age or another. Whoever seeks God with a whole heart finds him. And as long as he remains in that relationship with God, God will not forsake him. So Asa receives this warning. He's exhorted. He's encouraged to remember what's happened here. After this great victory, he is to abide in the Lord, to continue in his faith. The Lord is with you while you be with him. And if you seek him, he'll be found by you. An important principle found many times in similar words throughout the Bible. Let me recite some similar verses. You will find him if you seek him with all your heart and all your soul. Deuteronomy 4.29 And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29.13 Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall knock. Knock and it shall be, seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. Matthew 7, verse 7. But the converse is also true. If you forsake him, he will forsake you. So this is a principle that has perpetual value. Not only for Asa, but for all believers in the great God. Verse 3. Now, for a long season, Israel had been without the true God and without teaching priests and without the law. That was especially true in the time of the judges, but also true even later in different stages of Israelite history. Uh, Solomon forsook God for a time. And then we have Rehoboam's reign. That was checkered as well. The state of Israel up north was uh, far from God at that point, completely paganized. And they were without the true God. And so we have an age up north in that Israelite kingdom that was lawless and faithless. And they did not have a teaching priest. One of the most important duties of the priest was not sacrificing, but teaching. Teaching was this great priestly function. And they were dispersed throughout the 12 tribes at the beginning of the United Kingdom to teach in those local communities the way of God. And when they failed in that, Israel became ignorant of God's ways and fell into immorality and paganism. The priest teaching role was vital to the moral and spiritual quality of the national life. That's why it was so important that Asa's son Jehoshaphat started a Bible education program. You might remember that split sermon I gave here some time ago. And now verse 4. But when they in their trouble did turn to the Lord, God of Israel, and sought him, he was found of them. 
God was always open to people coming back, repenting, changing their ways. Israel would then seek the Lord and he would deliver them. But through the judges period and these other periods of declension, there was sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance in a cycle that went on and on and on, generation after generation. Verse 5, and in those times there was no peace. Verse 5, in those times there was no peace to him that went out, nor to him that came in. But great vexations were upon all the inhabitants of the countries. When they were not serving God, there was civil war. There was constant danger and threat and violence and division. We should learn something from this by what we're going through right now in this country and elsewhere. Verse 6, nation was destroyed of nation, city of city, for God did vex them with all adversity. And now verse 7, this prophet says to Asa, be you strong, therefore, and let not your hands be weak, for your work will be rewarded. Remain firm in your loyalty to God. Continue the work of your reforms throughout your kingdom. This was an encouraging message to Asa. He was to continue to manifest faith and continue to bring about the restoration of a godly kingdom. Verse 8, And when Asa heard these words in the prophecy of Obed the prophet, he took courage. He put away the abominable idols out of all the land of Judah and Benjamin out of the cities which he had taken from Mount Ephraim and renewed the altar of the Lord that was before the porch of the Lord. That tells you the temple had fallen into disrepair and people were not worshiping there as they should have. And he starts the temple service again and cleans out the nation from its paganism, destroying the idols. He took courage. This was a good and godly response. He took action with an open heart to God to restore and forgive their people. He understood the prophet's message and he continued his reforms. He removed all these idols out, these detestable things that included sodomy, the Asherim. He renewed God's altar. He cleaned house throughout his kingdom. And he restored the altar of the Lord We should notice that this took courage for King Asa. He is combating the entrenched interests in favor of idolatry, the unseen spiritual forces in favor of idolatry, the example of his predecessors and neighboring tribes in the north, his own fleshly inclinations in favor of idolatry and compromise perhaps in his past, and the lethargy of compromise and indifference that supports idolatry. Many well-meaning reformers accomplish little when they lack courage. So what's important is that Asa brought this reform throughout his entire nation. In verse 9, he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and the strangers, the foreigners, who moved south from the northern house of Israel, from the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh and out of Simeon, for they fell to him or came to him out of Israel in abundance when they saw that the Lord his God was with them. These people said, there's something happening down there. I'm going there to serve my God. And they left the northern kingdom and fled to the south 
to be in the Judahite kingdom under Asa. So you have northern Israelites now living among the Judahites. They came in great abundance. They joined Asa in abundance when they saw God was with them. His bold obedience to God earned the respect of these people in the apostate kingdom, only getting worse as time prevailed. And this alarms the king of the northern Israelite kingdom, Abaisha. So verse 10, they gathered themselves together at Jerusalem in the third month, in the 15th year, in the reign of Asa. They gathered together in the third month. What season, what holy day might that be? It looks like Feast of Weeks, we call Pentecost. Month Sivan, perhaps June. These folks came down to observe God's festival. In verse 11, they offered unto the Lord the same time of the spoil which they had brought, 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep. Sacrifice, as God had allowed during the Old Testament system. In verse 12, they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, God of their fathers, with all their hearts and all their soul. They want to renew that covenant which had been made with their ancestors at Sinai. They wanted that connection to the past when things were right with God. And God was leading that nation through Moses. And they actually make a public promise. So they're holding all their people and each other accountable to live by this way of life. This is not half-hearted at all. Verse 13, that whosoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. That sounds harsh, but that was the way it was under Moses too. They could not tolerate wickedness in the kingdom. And people that began to introduce idolatry were removed. They were killed. And so this nation at this time goes boldly to clean house thoroughly. This law was drastic, but it brings about a revival of these people. Verse 15, all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart, made this solemn promise, and they sought him with their whole desire. And God was found of them, and the Lord gave them rest round about. So here's a public covenant. They knew the seriousness of it. They do this together with a sacrifice, seeking God completely, holding each other accountable, publicly, joyfully, and they knew there would be reward attached as they continue this cleansing process. In verse 16, also concerning Maacah, the mother of Asa, the king, he removed her from being queen. Why? Because she had made an idol in a grove. And Asa cut down her idol, stamped it, and burned it, this wooden image at the brook Kidron. Maacah, as you might see in your margin, was probably his grandmother. Seems his mother had died, and Maacah, his grandmother, had raised him. She had been Rehoboam's wife, and she was queen, a word that in Hebrew can also mean queen mother. As his grandmother, she was queen mother. But she had brought in paganism, and he has to act boldly, even within his own family. That's when you're really tested, when you have to stand for the truth, even with your own family. 
And he removes her from being a queen. She had brought in this obscene image. Frightening, terrible, abominable. And he doesn't put it in a closet or in a museum. He destroys it. And he burns it. Religious syncretism, the blending of religious ideas, was very common in this era. And Asa is bringing his people back to where they belong. 17, but the high places were not taken away out of Israel. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was perfect in all his days. Perfect in regard to idolatry. Verse 18, he brought into the house of God the things that his father had dedicated and that he himself had dedicated silver, gold, and vessels. And there was no more war unto the 35 and 30th year of the reign of Asa. 35th year of his reign. Now, with that said, chapter 16. In the 6th and 30th year of the reign of Asa, Baasha, the king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah to the intent that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. King Baasha. 35th year seems to be related to 931 B.C. when the kingdom split. And Jeroboam led the house of Israel in rebellion against the house of David. This king now of Israel, though there had been quiet between the two kingdoms to this point, realizes he's losing a huge uh, population group from his kingdom, heading south, going down to uh, Asa's kingdom. And he wants to put a stop to it. So he came up against Judah and built Ramah. Ramah was a city just four or five miles north of Jerusalem. And he wants to stop the flow of these northern Israelites from joining Asa and to disturb the commerce, the trade between the kingdoms in order to pressure Asa to submit to his will. Verse 2. Then Asa brought out silver and gold out of the treasures of the house of the Lord and of the king's house and sent to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, which was up above the house of Israel, that dwelled at Damascus, saying, There's a leg between us and you and me, as there was between your father and my father. Behold, I've sent you silver and gold. Go break your leg with Baasha, your compact, your agreement. Break that compact with Baasha, king of Israel, that he may depart from me. (laughs) Look what he's just done. He just had a massive victory by faith over a million men army. And now with a smaller group, he tries to buy off. And he actually does succeed in buying off this king of Syria so that this king of Syria by an act of treachery, from, switches from being an ally of the north to an ally of the south and to pressure Baasha to pull back his troops. It's a struggle for dominance going on in the world at this time. Baasha's aim in fortifying Ramah was probably to prevent access to Jerusalem from all these people heading south. And so he, Asa takes money 
gold, silver from God's house, God's treasures, to give to this pagan king to buy his loyalty. He's panic-stricken, and now he begins to abandon God. Asa used this treasure to buy the favor of Ben-Hadad of Syria to withdraw his support for Israel. The treasure came from God's house. God was being robbed. Verse 3, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because, whoops, sorry, that's chapter 17. Okay, verse 3 of chapter 16, there's a leg between us. So I'm giving you lots of money. Break your agreement with Baasha. Let there be a leg between you and me instead. He's slipping. He's weak. He's showing unbelief. You see, the greatest faith of yesterday will not give us confidence for today unless we continue to replenish that faith. Sadly, for some reason, Asa did not daily replenish that faith. He got weak and now acts like a worldly king. Verse 4, And Ben-Hadad hearkened to King Asa, sent the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel, switched sides, and they smote Ejon and Dan and Abel, Maim, and all the store cities of Naphtali, the storehouse cities. Verse 5, It came to pass when Baasha heard it that he left off building of Ramah and let his work cease. That town, only a few miles north of Jerusalem. Verse 6. And Asa took, then Asa the king took all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah, and the timber thereof wherewith Baasha was building, and he built instead his own city, Skeba and Mizpah. And all seemed well. This plan worked. Was this the right thing to do? Verse 7. And at that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and he said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Syria and not relied on the Lord your God, therefore is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of your hand. What Asa did not realize is that Syria was a worse enemy than the house of Israel. And now he's let them escape. And Syria will give trouble to these two Israelite kingdoms time and time again in the years to come. God had given him a chance, Asa, to be victorious over both kingdoms, but he blew it. Seriously, compromise blinds us to who our true enemies are. And it leads us into alliances with those whom God would rather give us victory over. Verse 8. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubims a huge host with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you did rely on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. This much larger host. Why didn't you continue to turn to God and ask for deliverance as you had before? Verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro 
throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of them whose heart is perfect or loyal to him. Herein you have done foolishly, Asa, and your punishment, therefore, from henceforth, you will have wars. Everything had been going in the right direction. He could have had perpetual peace in his lifetime. And instead, because of this lack of faith and trying to buy off his enemies, he will bring trouble upon him and his people generation after generation. Let's see his response. You would think a man that had shown such faith once would repent bitterly like King David and turn to God. But instead, you see, he was trusting the arm of flesh, trusting other people to defend himself. Syria had escaped. And now verse 10, Asa was wroth with the seer. That was the old word for prophet. And put him in prison house. Those prison houses were probably probably included stocks that were wooden or metal apparatuses to clamp around legs or arms. For he was in a rage with him because of this thing. He punished the messenger, the prophet. So often the prophets took the brunt of this opposition. When really he, he was angry at God, but he punishes God's man, God's servant. And Asa, verse 10, the last part, oppressed some of the people the same time. These people, no doubt, saw his mistake, supported the prophet, only wished that King, that King Asa would repent. Many of those who had moved into the southern kingdom could not believe what they were seeing. And Asa, instead of repenting, turns against them and oppresses them becomes their enemy, punishes them severely. Verse 11, Behold the acts of Asa, first and last. Lo, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And that's why we're reading this today. It was recorded for us. These things were written for our admonition, the Apostle Paul told us. Verse 12, Asa in the 39th year of his reign was diseased in his feet until his disease was exceeding great. Yet in his disease, he sought not to the Lord, but to the physicians. His problem was not seeking for medical attention. His problem was he did not look to God. He has turned his back on God. He has punished God's prophet. The people who were remaining faithful to God. And now he's diseased in his feet, a punishment that came upon him. The Bible does not speak against physicians as such. Luke was a physician who traveled with Paul, probably treated Paul's maladies. That was not the problem. The problem was he had turned his eyes away from God. He sought not to the Lord. Who were these healers of the time? In many courts, there were Egyptian Workers of various uh, 
magical tricks, who used charms, incantations, mystic arts. And his court may have had such people. We don't know for sure. Heathenish conjurers, necromancers, pretenders to magical arts. Perhaps those are the kinds of physicians, quote unquote, he was turning to. Instead of God, desperate as he was. And then in verse 13, Asa slept with his fathers. He died. Died in the one and fortieth year of his reign. During the last three years of his reign and life, he suffered from a severe foot illness. Some thought it was gout. That doesn't seem to be what it was. Others suggest that it was a peripheral obstructive vascular disease with ensuing gangrene. But he, in any case, he died a miserable death. And it was ironic that he may have clamped that poor prophet in the prison by his feet. And now Asa suffers a disease in his feet. Remember I said his name was related somehow to cure or position? <laughs> At the beginning of the story, we were given a clue as to what's going to happen here. Asa slept with his fathers and died in his 41st year of his reign. He could have had such a successful kingdom and record that would have been a model for all of us to follow. And yet, how disappointing. And so they buried him, verse 14, in his own sepulchers, which he had made for himself in the city of David, and laid him in the bed, which was filled with sweet odors and different kinds of spices, prepared by the apothecary's art, and they made a very great burning for him. Not cremation, but customary funeral fires of that era. He who could drive out the huge army of the Ethiopians could not drive away death, and he dies a horrible death. Asa started out so well, but ended up so pitifully. In the end, he made four major mistakes, trusting Syria instead of God, mistreating God's prophet who was used to help him, oppressing his own people when they were so disappointed by his current lapse of faith, and then trusting these quackish physicians while not calling upon God. You see, this story really struck me when I was going through my regular daily Bible reading this past year. And I, I thought, I would like to tell that story because it is such, has such an important lesson. A lesson of the importance of continuance, brethren. We must, as we hear all the time, endure to the end. It is not how we start our Christian life, but how we finish it. Our later faith and works must be greater than the former. We must continue to stay strong and refuel that faith that we had at the beginning and not grow weary, not lose that first love. A lesson of continuance to remind us of what Paul said when he wrote, let us not be weary in well-doing, but in due season we shall reap 
If we faint, faint not, Galatians 6 and verse 9. 